0: A warm welcome at First Move. I'm Zayn Asher, sitting in for Julia Chatterley, just ahead on today's show. Crucial call, an important new development in the Ukraine war. Chinese President Xi and Ukrainian President Zelensky holding talks on the conflict for the very first time. Zelensky describing the phone conversation as long and as meaningful as well. We'll have a live report on this just ahead for you. Plus... The Sudan crisis, a tense 72-hour ceasefire in the war-torn country winding down. More last-minute evacuations in fears of a biological lab accident. Uh, We are live in Sudan with the very latest as well. And financial fears. U.S. Regional bank First Republic mulling emergency steps to stave off collapse. Its shares tumbling almost 50% Tuesday and are down again pre-market today. How exposed is the global banking industry to new shocks? We'll be discussing that as well. First Republic's drama helping pressure U.S. stocks in the previous session with all the major averages down more than 1%. But a firmer picture for U.S. futures today Solid results from tech giants Microsoft and Google's parent company Alphabet helping the market mood. However, Europe is firmly in the red. Here in the U.S., shares of gaming giant Activision Blizzard are tumbling almost 10 percent pre-market after the U.K. ruled against its multi-billion dollar merger deal with Microsoft. We'll have more on that in just a moment. We begin, though, with the latest on Ukraine. Ukraine's President Zelensky says he's had, in his words, as I mentioned, a long and meaningful phone call with China's President Xi Jinping, saying that he hopes uh, it will give impetus to the development of Ukraine's relations with Beijing. CNN's International Diplomatic Editor Nick Robertson is in Kiev. So Nick, do we have any more details on what specifically uh, the two men discussed?
1: We have a little bit of detail. They both seem to be putting this in a very positive light. Both leaders say they're exchanging diplomats. Uh, the Ukrainians sending an ambassador to Russia, the Chinese sending an envoy here to Ukraine. This envoy, it, it will be interesting to be noted, perhaps on the Ukrainian side, that this particular envoy spent 10 years as a China's ambassador in Moscow. But the language that's being used here, very, very diplomatic, uh, President Xi saying that he neither wants to watch the fire from the other side nor pour fuel on it nor profit from it. so I think the sense here is that this is an opening of a diplomatic opportunity between the two countries. Remembering that just a month or so ago, President Xi was in Russia meeting with President Putin. Both these leaders have met many times in the past. They've already had five phone calls this year. So this phone call between President Xi and President Zelensky, the first since Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, is significant. But their positions are still very far apart. President Xi, when he was in Moscow, said essentially, you know, we'd like to help negotiate a solution and here's our proposal. Well, Ukraine's Western back has said nowhere in China's proposal did it mention at all Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. And Ukraine's current position on its peace plan is that Russia should withdraw and get out of all Ukrainian territory to the pre-1991 borders. So on the surface, it would seem that both sides, although uh, there's an air of Improved diplomacy here and not really any closer on the big gaps uh, in, the, in their differences on the way they view the situation. Uh, and a word from Moscow on this, they say they've taken note of China's involvement here to further its efforts in negotiations, but they also see they don't see any likelihood of that bearing fruit in the near future. And I think that's the sort of political diplomatic reality. But when President Xi visited Moscow, uh, President Zelensky. You know, follow up to that was essentially if President Xi has a peace plan, then it would be great if he spoke here with us in Ukraine. So this is a step along that path.
0: And then given everything you've just said, given how close China is uh, with Russia, given how much China has sort of tried to, I guess, prop up Moscow, especially when it comes to either buying Russian oil or selling drones uh, to Moscow, what can Zelensky really expect in the long term to come out of uh, this phone call? You know, China
1: um, is potentially an important economic partner uh, many years in the future for Ukraine. And the envoy that is sending is a former uh, top customs official here in Ukraine. So you would think perhaps that indicates that Zelensky has at the back of his mind uh, future trade opportunities with China. You know, Ukraine is going to be in massive need for rejuvenating and regenerating its, its industries and economy here. Once, uh, once the war is over, that's over the horizon at the moment. But but that would be the long term view of the Ukraine. So I think uh, of Ukraine. So I think that would be part of the, uh, the picture here. What can be achieved in the short term? Well, it will at least allow at a diplomatic level a closer and more intense exchange of what is really happening in the war. Because in Ukraine, the feeling is very clearly that uh, President Xi only gets fully President Putin's view and narrative on what's happening. So any chance that Ukraine has to put their view across and in if you will, undermine or show the inconsistencies in Putin's uh, Putin's view and Putin's illegal invasion, um, this will be something Ukraine will want to exploit.
0: All right. uh, Nick Robertson live for us there. Thank you so much. In Russia today, jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny appeared in court via video link. His first appearance since new concerns were raised about his health. Navalny is warning that he faces decades in prison on new terrorism charges. He called the charges unfounded and absurd uh, as well and said he had been placed once again in solitary confinement. His daughter says prison officials are denying him food. Shares of First Republic Bank falling again in pre-market trading after dropping nearly 50 percent on Tuesday alone following its report that customers withdrew about $100 billion in the first quarter. Take a look at this chart. Uh, The U.S. regional lender has lost more than 90 percent of its value since the banking crisis began last month. David Ciaverny is joining me live now. He's the managing director at Redbush Securities. David, thank you so much for being with us. So without a massive injection of cash here, what happens to this bank?
2: Yeah, the main option for First Republic is to go forward as a standalone company. Now, the good news for them is that unprecedented amounts of liquidity is being uh, thrown their way. They're able to pledge their loans and securities to the Fed and that gives them some runway uh, to move forward. But it's not going to be easy by any stretch because they're taking on significant borrowings because of all of the deposits that have gone out the door. So their net interest margin is really getting crushed here. So they already announced with their earnings release that they're going to reduce staff by 20 to 25%. I'm kind of viewing this as a round one of potentially multiple rounds because they really have to right size their expense base to get back into a position of, of profitability. So we did take down our earnings estimates looking out for the next few years.
0: Just in terms of um, how much money has been withdrawn, about $100 billion, I mean, what shocks you here? Is it really the speed, the speed at which depositors were withdrawing their cash?
2: Yeah, you nailed it. It's, it's the magnitude of the deposit outflows. They started uh, at December 31st. They were at $176 billion of deposits. That's come down $102 billion on a core basis. Now, the big banks came in with a I guess you could say, a partial liquidity rescue by depositing $30 billion um, into the bank. So that gave them a little bit more of a runway. But the, the balance sheet, the core balance sheet is clearly under significant pressure. And that pressures all aspects of the rest of the business model, because now they really have to significantly pull back on their lending uh, going forward. And we've also seen a number of financial advisors on the wealth management side also leave the bank. Um, So the first republic that we once knew it as, um, their business model is changing significantly going forward.
0: And the executives, unfortunately, didn't do that much to establish confidence on the call. I mean, many of the executives really refusing to answer questions.
2: That's right. They did not hold a QA and a session, which is uh, customary. But at the same time, given how how much the stock has come down, how difficult of a business environment and challenging environment it is for them. I wasn't surprised that they didn't take Q&A. And in fact, I, expect that I wouldn't have been surprised if they had pre-recorded the call, played the call, and then ended the call uh, from there. So at least we did get live comments, but uh, you're absolutely right. They did not provide uh, an opportunity to ask uh, Q&A for analysts. So that leaves investors essentially uh, assuming the worst when it comes to uh, what's going on behind the scenes.
0: All right, David Giavioni, thank you so much for being with us, Managing Director at Wedbush Securities. We appreciate it. All right, in Sudan, a fragile 72-hour ceasefire is now in its second day, but witnesses continue to report sporadic fighting. In the meantime, the World Health Organization warns of a huge biological risk after the National Health Laboratory was seized uh, by fighters. Sam Kylie joins us live now uh, with more. So Sam, just walk us through how great the threat is at this point in time, especially when it comes to the samples, the samples of diseases that are in this lab.
3: Well, I think that we need to keep our heads on on this. This is not a a laboratory that may be producing an unknown pathogen like COVID-19. What it is, is a laboratory that uh, contains biohazards. Among them, we know from the WHO, are measles, polio and cholera. Now, measles and cholera are pretty endemic in Sudan. There will be pockets uh, or people carrying cholera in Khartoum as we speak, obviously If this laboratory were compromised, if there was uh, a release of these pathogens into the population, that would be a disaster. Uh, But it isn't uh, something that would be utterly catastrophic globally. Uh, What it would be, though, is it would reintroduce potentially polio to a population in which it's been eradicated or officially eradicated. There are still pockets, I understand, in West Africa of polio. But essentially, that is a disease that has been done away with by decades of inoculation. Measles uh, still exist there. Cholera in a town in which there is already a chronic shortage of water. Clean water is only available to people with access now to wells in most of the city it is getting increasingly dirty the uh, hospitals are already overwhelmed so were there to be a cholera epidemic as a con- or a cholera spread as a result either Uh, of the existing uh, pathogen being in the population or worse still, from a release from a laboratory, then it would obviously be very disastrous. And The thing about cholera is it can get a grip on a a vulnerable population, such as a population at war, very, very quickly. We've seen that many times in the past, particularly during African civil wars, notably the most catastrophic outbreak being in what was then Zaire many years ago, Zane. So that is the issue. But on top of all of that, there is ongoing violence. There is also... controversy uh, between the different attitudes to the evacuations of national groups. So Britain, for example, is conducting or planning to conduct something like six flights to try and evacuate British nationals after quite a lot of criticism in the British media for in in the in the critics view failing to. Uh, properly look after their citizens. The United States is saying to it, 16,000 citizens, to remain in place because they don't think that the, the ceasefire at the moment is permissive enough to be able to conduct evacuations. But uh, in Saudi Arabia, some 2,000 people have now been landed in Jeddah on a ferry as a result of being able to get overland to the port Sudan. Now, that looks to be the best way out for most people. The problem is that is itself a dangerous route, Zing.
0: All right, Sam Kiley, live for us there. Thank you uh, so much. Former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is testifying right now at police headquarters in Brasilia on his alleged role in the riots on January eighth. The riots took place after a week, uh, a week after leftist President Luís Inacio Lula da Silva was sworn into office. Supporters of Bolsonaro invaded and vandalized the Congress building, the presidential palace, and the Supreme Court as well in a reaction to the election results. The former president has denied that he bears any responsibility. Julia Vargas-Jones joins us live now from Sao Paulo. So, Julia, just walk us through the evidence that Bolsonaro may have actively instigated and encouraged the violence that we saw on January 8th, whether it's to, to do with the fact that he claimed that the October election was stolen or the fact that he sort of undermined trust in the electronic voting system. Just walk us through that.
4: Well, Zane, it's kind of all of that, right? He did not keep that a secret. He started criticizing the electoral system months before January 8. It's actually hard to pinpoint when that really began. As his campaign started to take off, he started to, to double down on those, on those claims claims, by the way, that the uh, electoral system here, that electronic uh, voting machines were uh, somehow uh, had their integrity compromised. Uh, and that's part of a post that police is investigating that was uh, he posted on January 10th. Then he deleted from his social media accounts. And that's what he said, that the voting machines were not reliable, and he actually questioned the results of the election at that point. Just to give you a sense, right, that happened after January 8th. He did not stop making those false claims both online and when he was a president in his official addresses at times he said i wouldn't accept the results of the elections if they're not on paper kind of taking a page out out of donald trump's playbook right during the 2020 election he actually requested an audit very similar to what happened in arizona zane with a similar kind of that went through the voting machines and did not find any evidence of fraud. But he warned of fraud in those electronic voting machines early on. Another piece that they might be looking into, investigators might be looking into, is a memorandum, a draft decree that was found in his justice minister's home during a raid that said that it was proposing a coup and laying out steps to instate a sort of military state of siege which, as you can imagine, in Brazil, a country with a young and, and not necessarily fragile but still a young democracy that lived through a dictatorship during the 60s, 70s, and into uh, the 1980s, it's a very sore point for, for the political scene here. And another issue, Zane, that they're looking into is why did the president leave for Florida right before the inauguration of Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, his opponent? He left for Florida. His justice minister, the one from the decree I just mentioned, he also went to Florida at some point. Was there some kind of connection or was he just sulking his loss? So those are kind of the main points that investigators are looking into. Did he actually have a role in instigating the attacks or uh, was this just a coincidence, right? He had massive followings uh, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, on Twitter where he kept on pushing this message. So these are the points that he's gonna be looking at today and that's what investigators will be grilling him on, Zane. All
0: right, Julia, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. All right, so to come here on First Move, on the menu at Chipotle, a selection of strong earnings. The CFO tells me why they're cooking with gas. Plus, the EV revolution is coming. But what does that mean for oil? The head of the International Energy Agency will be here with all the numbers. Microsoft's nearly $70 billion takeover on Activision Blizzard, blocked by UK regulators, the British antitrust Watchdog says that the deal would harm competition in cloud gaming shortly after the ruling Microsoft saying, quote, we remain fully committed to this acquisition and we will appeal. Claire Duffy joins us live now with more. Claire.
5: That's right. So this deal would have been one of the biggest tech acquisition deals in history. It would have made Microsoft the third biggest gaming company in the world, and it would have put it in control of really popular games like World of Warcraft and Call of Duty. And as you said, it could have supported its Xbox gaming business, its cloud gaming business. Now, the UK antitrust regulator said the deal would harm innovation and competition for gamers, and this really adds to the regulatory opposition that Microsoft is facing over this deal. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission sued to block the deal in December. And the EU is already sort of reviewing this deal. And now both companies are saying they're going to appeal. And Brad Smith, uh, Microsoft's president, said that this deal sort of rejects some of the concessions that they had made to try to win over regulators. They had promised, for example, to make some of these popular games available on rivals platforms. But it appears that wasn't enough to win over the UK authority here.
0: All right. Claire Duffy, live for us there. Thank you so
5: much The
0: Mexican restaurant chain Chipotle with locations in the U.S., Canada and Europe is serving up better than expected earnings in the first quarter. The chain, which expanded its footprint with 41 new restaurants in the first quarter, says that higher menu prices has actually helped increase its revenue by 17 percent year on year. The company has the goal of 7,000 locations across North America. Are they on target? Jack Hartung is the chief financial officer at Chipotle. He joins us live now. Jack, thank you so much for being with us. Let's talk about earnings, beating expectations, profits coming in higher than expected, partly because of um, obviously higher prices, more foot traffic, uh, lower cost in terms of avocados and other ingredients as well. How do you sustain it?
6: Yeah, you know, in addition to in inflation, which, you know, that's not new news. Every restaurant company's had to deal with inflation. We have as well. But our transactions are positive. So despite the fact that we've had to cover inflation with some menu price increases over the past, you know, 12, 18 months, our transactions were up 4% during the quarter. So we think that's a great statement that our customers are saying. They still want to come to Chipotle. They understand that inflation is here and it's real. But Chipotle is still their choice to, you know, when they're looking for a great meal and great value, uh, they're still coming to Chipotle.
0: When it comes to foot traffic, though, I mean, obviously people, as you point out, people are still coming to Chipotle despite the higher prices. How are you sustaining that, though?
6: Yeah, well, there's a number of things that we're we're doing. First of all, um, we try to make sure every one of our channels is convenient and frictionless for our consumers. So we have a great digital channel that's almost 40 percent of our business, but we have a great inline business as well where customers can come in, go down the line, interact with our teams um, and have a great customized meal. And And again, it's at a great value. Our our chicken burrito, which is uh, you know what more than half of our customers do get when they come to Chipotle, um, is still just a little over nine dollars. So it's a it's a really great value. But also, our, we're spicing it up with things like uh, a limited time offer with our um, uh, chicken al pastor, which our customers have really really loved. About one in four customers are getting it. We've also engaged really with the al
0: pastor is really
6: popular. very popular. Very popular. Customers love it. Um, you know, the, the great thing is. When we have something new, customers are excited to try it. But importantly, on the Chicken El Pastor, they're trying it and liking it and they keep coming back. And we're bringing new customers in. We're bringing existing customers in more often. And so it's been a big hit so far.
0: You guys have raised prices, I think, three times over the past year and a half. Do you plan to continue that, especially given inflationary pressures?
6: Yeah, no further plans right now. You know, in the first quarter, our inflation in terms of our ingredients was relatively flat. We're still seeing wage inflation. So. We don't have any further plans. We're going to watch what the landscape looks like. We're going to watch what happens to the macro economy, what happens to inflation of our ingredients. We know we have pricing power. Um, we know that we uh, you know, have the ability to protect our margins when inflation comes in. But we're going to be very patient before we take any action.
0: So, as you point out, despite the price increases, you've, sustained, you've seen sustained growth in foot traffic. Are you concerned, though, about what the price increases will mean for lower income Customers coming to your stores.
6: Yeah, you know, in the fourth quarter, we did see that lower-income consumers pulled back a bit. In the first mm-hmm. quarter, we saw them come back almost to the same level as they were before the fourth quarter. So we think that's a great, you know, indication that even at the lower-income level, um, the value of coming to Chipotle and get a burrito for nine dollars compared to any other choices out there. And when you look at any other restaurant companies in our category, in the fast casual category. You typically have to spend somewhere between 10 and 30 percent more uh, at another restaurant company as you would compare to Chipotle. So um, our customers are discovering that even during you know inflationary times like this, Chipotle offers a great value with the kind of food that they want to eat every day.
0: What are your biggest concerns when it comes to the macroeconomic environment right now? I mean, obviously, we've touched on inflation. There's also sticky inflation. Uh, The possibility of a recession still looms large, still hangs overhead. What are your biggest concerns right now?
6: Yeah, you know, from a macro standpoint, I would say the biggest thing that would concern us is a recession that involves um, an employment problem. So right now we have very low uh, unemployment in the U.S. So even in this inflationary period, people still have money to do what they want to do, including going out and and dining when they choose to. And so the biggest problem that we would have or the biggest concern we would have is if the fight against inflation turns into significant job loss. And at that point, Mm -hmm. people are going to have to manage their budget. And one of the things they're going to have to make a choice about is, you know, will they want to eat out or do they want to eat at home? I mean, so far, so good. So far, it looks like inflation is leveling off. And our unemployment is still very, very low. So, you know, we're hopeful that we can navigate this and and get through it without any significant uh, shakeup in the economy.
0: Hopeful that the Fed can actually achieve that soft landing that they talk about. Um, Jack Harton, live for us there. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, still to come here on First Move, electric car sales are racing ahead. We'll chat with the director of the International Energy Agency about the electric revolution and what it means for energy suppliers and, of course, the planet. That's when we come back. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running this Wednesday. A firmer picture in early trading after Tuesday's sell-off, which was, of course, driven in part by fresh uncertainties in the U.S. bank sector. Attention turning to Washington, where the House could vote today on a Republican-backed bill to cut the U.S. budget and raise the debt ceiling. No word yet on whether House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has the votes or if the vote might be postponed. He has been making changes uh, to the bill to locate Republicans who are still on the fence. Whatever happens, the bill has no chance of being signed into law. All of this amid new fears that the U.S. could default on its debt as soon as June if a debt ceiling solution is not reached. Stocks in the news today include First Republic. Its shares falling again after losing almost half of their value Tuesday. The deeply troubled bank looking to sell billions of dollars in assets to shore up its finances and perhaps issue new stock. But fears about its future persist. Shares of Alphabet and Microsoft are higher after positive first quarter earnings. And Activision Blizzard shares are tumbling after UK officials voted to block its $69 billion takeover by Microsoft. Demand for electric cars is still racing ahead after a record-breaking 2022. Data from the International Energy Agency shows that more than 10 million electric vehicles were sold worldwide last year. That's expected to leap to 14 million this year. That would mean almost one in five cars sold in 2023 will indeed be electric. And the EV boom is, in turn, driving a change in the energy industry. The IEA says that by 2030, the switch to electric vehicles will reduce demand for oil by over 5 million barrels a day. Joining us live now is Fatih Birol, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency. Fatih, thank you so much for being with us. So that's an incredible statistic when you think about it, that in 2023, one in five cars sold will be electric vehicles. Just walk us through what is behind. I'm sure there are myriad reasons, but what is behind that surge?
7: I think uh, when we look at it, where we came uh, here from, uh, 2019, only four years ago, one uh, car out of 50 cars sold was electric cars. So 2% of all the cars sold in the world was electric cars. And four years later, uh, today, we are seeing that every fifth car is an electric car, driven by China, Europe, more and more United States, and the rest of the world. But I think the a bit more impressive number is, even with the current trends, if we don't see even an acceleration, which is likely, even with the current trends, 2030, which is tomorrow, about one out of three cars sold in the world will be an electric car. It is driven by different concerns. In some countries, it is driven by environmental clean energy concerns. But in China, it is an industrial policy. And at the same time, China wants to reduce its dependence on oil imports uh, from uh, countries. So there are three major drivers uh, behind the explosive growth of electric cars, namely climate concerns, the oil security concerns, and at the same time, it is an industrial policy in China. And uh, I believe with the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, Mm -hmm. we will see a big growth in the U.S. as well.
0: Yeah, it's important to mention um, just how important of a role policy changes have uh, been to these, uh, this sort of growth and these sorts of numbers we're seeing. You mentioned that the three biggest markets for this explosive growth, um, China, of course, Europe, the United States, what's being done to ensure sustained growth beyond those markets in places like India, for example, Indonesia too?
7: India, Indonesia, uh, Thailand, uh, different countries coming uh, strongly. In those countries, governments are also, if I may say so, waking up to the uh, electric car revolution. They are also putting policies in place in terms of the incentives, support, subsidies, And uh, uh, creating the infrastructure uh, for uh, the electric cars, and we will see those countries are joining as well. But if we we even leave those uh, markets aside for a moment, China, US, and Europe, they are the three largest car markets in the world now. In 2030, 60% of all the cars sold in these three largest car markets will be an electric uh, car, and this will have... Significant implications for the oil markets uh, for the oil industry
0: and speaking of the oil industry, as you just touched on there, I mean, what are the numbers here? from what i'm I've been reading and researching, um, there's an estimate that by 2030 by 2030, as you point out that literally is tomorrow, um, we'll see a reduction by about five million barrels of oil per day in terms of reducing demand for oil yeah.
7: So uh, when we look at the oil consumption today in the world, about 40% of oil consumption comes from the road transportation, cars, buses, and trucks. In terms of cars, we are uh, we just discussed this electric cars coming uh, very, very strongly. Uh, buses are uh, on the line, and the next wave will be uh, trucks, as such, even with Very conservative uh, uh, assumptions, we think we will uh, see there will be at least five million barrels per day of uh, oil consumption avoided. And the biggest impact will be on the uh, gasoline and diesel uh, consumption as they are the main input for the uh, cars. But uh, uh, we should also, uh, in addition to oil industry, we should also take note that the automotive industry... Uh, the car manufacturing industry is going through a major transformation that we have not seen since the early 20th uh, century, moving to, uh, from the uh, fossil fuel uh, run cars, trucks and buses to an electrification of the, our transportation uh, system. So the, the, the key word is electricity is the future for the transportation sector.
0: All right, Katia Abirol. Thank you so much for being with us, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency. We appreciate it. All right, for a long time, there was little new about Newark Airport in New Jersey, but it's amazing what a difference a few billion dollars can make. Richard Quest takes a peek inside next. Welcome back. As we enter the summer travel season, it's fair to say the big three airports serving New York City have struggled to deliver a satisfying passenger experience. I'm talking about Newark, LaGuardia, and JFK, but billions of dollars are being spent to try to change all of that. Richard Quest spoke to the man driving the upgrades.
8: Travelling to New York City used to be a miserable experience, something to be endured, not enjoyed. It was a journey through places like LaGuardia that Joe Biden once compared to arriving in a third-world country. And the other airports in the tri-state area weren't much better. JFK, Newark, and even the Port Authority bus terminal. They were too small, out of date, and difficult to get to. Survey after survey showed travellers thought they were amongst the worst in the country. The Port Authority has spent billions of dollars and many years rebuilding the travel experience. LaGuardia Terminal B, rebuilt, reopened and just named the world's best new terminal by Skytrax. And now Terminal A at Newark, recently opened after a $2.7 billion renovation. I like this. And that's where I met the man behind it all. The head of the Port Authority, Rick Cotton.
9: Soup to nuts. We are tearing down the old facilities and building new 21st century facilities uh, at every single one of our major airports.
8: Michael O'Leary of Ryanair is a firm believer that all you need is a shed. That you go in the, you've heard this, you go in the front, you go out the back. You don't necessarily subscribe to that view. You think there needs to be something that says something.
9: Yes, well, airports are gateways, first of all. And they're also symbols of the regions that they serve. And so that's what they need to be. One of the
8: airports isn't actually in New York. It's Newark. Now they're proudly pointing out that Newark is close to New York, but it's actually next door. You will see references
9: to New Jersey across this new Terminal A. You will see constant references to New York across the new LaGuardia. You will see future tents. Uh, we're spending $19 billion at JFK. You will see in those terminals New York.
8: Mr. Cotton told me that the old Terminal A was built 50 years ago. It was another era in travel. Over the years, it was too small and in the worst condition of all the terminals at Newark. He told me the lessons they learned as they were building the new Terminal A. What we've learned is you need
9: open spaces. You can't have pinch points, you can't have places where queues form. Uh, you have to have the technology support rapid throughput, the ease with which people board so that all of these gates are equipped with e-gates in ways that right now people can board just with their cell phone but in the future it'll be biometric.
8: We're getting ready for summer but last year was horrible. Will this year be better? Are you ready? I I know to an extent it's not you. It's all the various... But you get the blame. Uh, Well,
9: the, the fact is the system is still struggling a bit in terms of coming back, finding staff that goes across. It's with our government partners, it's with the airlines, it's with the Port Authority. We have the highest vacancy in terms of jobs we're trying to fill. And this summer, is going to be over 2019 levels. There's just no question, travel has come back. So we're we're preparing for it in terms of actually hiring extra staff. We're preparing for it in terms of being sure that every system has checks and double checks, Uh, but it's going to be a challenge.
0: CNN's Richard Quest reporting there from Newark Liberty International Airport. Right, Kim Kardashian is one of the most recognizable faces on TV and on social media. Besides being a TV star and an influencer, she's also a very successful entrepreneur as well. Her shapewear and clothing company, Skims, is valued at $3.2 billion. And of course, she's a mom to four children. Kim Kim actually spoke to my colleague, Poppy Harlow, at the Time 100 Summit in New York about her life as a mom, daughter, aspiring lawyer and executive as well.
10: I was thinking a lot about sort of how you do business and observing it from the outside. Do you trust your gut? Absolutely. Absolutely. over the data, over what other people say, Kim, you should do this, we should do this?
11: Absolutely. Um, And I like to be in business. I think there's two things. I like to do things that I will feel very confident in, that I obviously feel like I know what I'm doing. I want to learn and surround myself with people that will support you in a way where you trust them so much Mm -hmm. in the area that they're going to run the business in. And you give them that control, and they trust you in the area that you really know. And if you just trust each other like that, it absolutely can be magic.
10: Equal respect and trust.
11: Yes. And I do have, I think as you get a little bit older, and you learn a lot along the way, I think one of the most important things, and there was a time when I didn't have this luxury of choosing who I was in business with. Yeah. But... If you're at a place and you take your time, you realize that you absolutely do not want to be in business with people you don't want to spend holidays with and that you don't like. So uh, your dad,
10: you've said that a lot of your work ethic because I've heard you only sleep about five and a half hours a night, if that A lot of it. Now, comes now. <laughs> a lot of it comes from your dad, and you lost him when you were 22. Yes. He died from cancer, just two-month two battle with cancer. Um, he was a lawyer, and your dream was to follow in his footsteps. We were talking about this backstage. My dad, too, lawyer, died when I was young, four months in the hospital. So I, I, I understand that and wanting to make them so proud. Is his memory and what he wanted for you and what you learned from him a driving force now in your criminal justice work?
11: Absolutely but I know that he would probably get such a kick out of this because he wouldn't have expected it at all. Um, we talked so much about me going to law school and he always said he would help give us an allowance if we stayed in school and um, I couldn't, couldn't do it. I was like, I'm on my own, I don't care. I'm not gonna go to, I, I didn't uh, finish school. And then, now that the opportunity came about, all these years later, it's so much more meaningful to me. Didn't he tell you not to be a lawyer? He did. He did. He, <laughs> well, he did say he going to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> he did warn me how stressful it is and said, I know you. You're not going to want to go through this. So, figure out something else to do. But I will say, I did learn my work ethic from my dad. Yeah. But I learned so much more from my mom than I ever give her credit for, and oh. that I ever, I, you know.
10: So give Chris credit, right? Yes.
11: Now. I, I don't know. Is it a thing, like, you kind of give, this is, like, I'm not even trying to be funny, but you kind of give the dead parent a lot of credit, I mean, it's, you know?
10: it's so true. My, my, my mom said the same thing to me. We did this video for CNN all about my dad, and she's like, I love it, Poppy,
11: but you know (laughs) I was there too I was there too (laughs) about me yeah I get it I'm, I'm, I'm sorry mom you know if you watch this I feel like we've always given my dad so much credit what what did she teach you well deserving but she I mean the one thing is she taught us how to um have a home how to make a home and all of my I mean I'm she's the most nostalgic, sentimental person, so she kept everything from when we were growing up. I could find a tooth, I could find locks of hair, I could find, (laughs) she has these chests that she saved for us with baby books, and so I do that with all of my kids, and I write each one of my kids a letter, like a four or five page letter every year on their birthday um, that I'll give them when they're 21, and um, you know, about what we did through the whole year and what their favorite shows are and what they like to eat and who their friends do this are. for and, every
10: child? I definitely yeah. feel like I'm underperforming in the parenting
1: department.
11: <laughs> yeah. Next it's, year. It's a lot. We'll do it. So, it's a lot. So she taught us how to be really good moms. How to make a home. I don't, I, I love
10: being a homemaker and I love working and I don't know often that we talk about both. So I'm really glad that you said that. You have said my 40s are about being team me. Me too. 40s are the best. So far, so good. I've got almost a year in the books. I agree. Any advice for folks on
11: Team Me? Just, oh my God, I have so much advice and I'm blanking. Um, I mean, I think it's just really simple. Like, I live my life just trying to be a good person Be do right by other people. You know, be kind to everyone, and focus on yourself. Sometimes you need to give yourself a little bit more love. Sometimes other people need a little bit more love, and there's just enough to go around.
0: Right? These are live pictures. Outside the White House, in just a few moments from now, U.S. President Joe Biden is set to welcome South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol at the White House. You just, you're were listening to the Marine Corps Band uh, playing there. This is uh, the South Lawn, where we expect a traditional state arrival. The two leaders will listen to a Korean choir. And they will both make brief remarks later in about an hour or a few hours rather from now. They'll be given a joint news conference. And tonight the Bidens will host a state dinner for President Yoon and his wife as well. The state visit comes under the banner of the Washington Declaration. And of course, we will bring you all the pomp and circumstance live when it begins next hour. All right. China's giant panda, Yaya, is on a long journey home. She was loaned to the Memphis Zoo two decades ago with fellow giant panda, Lili, who actually died in February. Now, China says that she'll be back soon. Anna Corrin has more for us from Hong Kong. Uh, So there are concerns, Anna, from animal rights groups. But of course, this return From Yaya back to China comes at a time when, you know, US China relations are at a low point.
12: Yeah, that's right, Zane. Uh, But it's these Chinese netizens and animal rights activists who've been watching, you know, the footage of Yaya coming out of of Memphis Zoo, very concerned about her condition. They claim that she's unwell, that she's been underweight, uh, that she has been. Uh, mistreated these are allegations that have been you know firmly denied by Memphis Zoo that has looked after Yaya for the past uh, Twenty years. Uh, it really all escalated uh, when her male mate uh, Lulu he died earlier this year, back in in February, and and that caused all this concern. You know about about how these animals were, were being treated. Uh, vets were flown in from from Beijing. They conducted a post mortem on Lulu, which found that he actually died from heart disease. They also inspected Lala, found that her weight was in fact good. Her appetite was good, and. They that she, in fact, suffers from this skin condition, which can make her, her fur look look patchy and, and thin. And that is obviously what these Chinese netizens have, have picked up on. They have demanded that she be brought home. She was always scheduled to, to fly back uh, to, to China this month. But they say this you know, panda diplomacy that China does with, with current countries, they want no more pandas, Zane, uh, sent to the United States.
0: All right, Anacron, Curran, live for us there. Thank you. And that's it for the show. I'm Zane Ash. I'll be back in a couple of hours with One World.
2: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.